another edition of Mr. Nice Guy. I'm Ben Slowey. I'm joined today. We, we bond over a lot of uh, slowcore and sad, dreary uh, indie music. Badhead. Badhead. As well as uh, the microphones. Microphone. Who we saw together uh, a couple months ago in Chicago. And I'm excited to talk to her all about uh, socialism and being radical and, uh, you know, organizing around revolution. Sam Dukas, welcome to the show. Thanks, Ben. I appreciate you having me on. It's very nice of you. Anytime, Sam. Anytime. We've been, uh, we've been talking about it, and here we are, you know. I actually remember the first time you asked me. Um, I can't remember. It was like winter 2020, I think. Mm, yeah. We were riding in our car at a... Um, Oh, yeah. Rally at a different yeah. rally. Ra- ra- I think it was my car. I do remember this. Um, yeah, we were talking um, postmodernism. Yes, we were. Yes. Yeah. And I gave a long rambling explanation. Yeah, at you, that time you did. I was struggling to wrap my head around what the actual like definition of postmodernism was at the time. That's your problem. That was your problem. <laughs> yeah. Trying to come to a definition. I know. The definition I like to go with that I usually like default to, especially when I'm explaining it to other people, is um, the one that the French theorist Jean-Francois Lyotard um, uses, which is just like postmodernism is a general incredulity um, towards um, meta-narratives. That's Mm -hmm. its general um, orientation. And I think if you go off that, you can understand a lot of what postmodernism does and why it has a lot of, you know, seemingly contradictory tendencies Mm -hmm. um but the frame therein i prefer is um the method of analysis that i prefer the postmodern method of analysis that i prefer the most yeah is frederick jameson's um if you've read the post postmodernism or the cultural logic of late capitalism that is my um that's my um go-to um Mm. you know analysis postmodern analysis yeah my go-to lens. I always sure. do things in a Jamesonian lens. Oh. As does Mark Fisher, who I think a lot of listeners might know from, you know, books like Capitalist Realism, you know, the numerous essays he's done, his blog K-Punk. Um, he's great. Um, and, you know, he has book The Weird and the Eerie. Mm. Um, he has the collection of essays Ghosts of My Life, which is a sort of hauntological um, mm. book on hauntological essays. Very, very good. Um I don't think yeah. you're listening. Do you know what hauntology is? There's a whole. I do actually. I I found out about hauntology from listening to the caretaker. Mm, yeah. 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 What was ugh, I'm trying to remember? I think it was everything at the end of time. Like he's kind of classified into hauntology a little bit. Yeah, he is, and the label he is on too is also, um, also pretty much well noted for making hauntological. Um, Hauntological releases, but I can't remember for the life of me what it was called. I will later. Sure, we can fact check. We can fact check. We need to start a reading list about all this shit. I think Ben, I don't, I don't think you want to see how long my current reading list is. <laughs> oh man, wow. and how little time I have for it. I have I <laughs> same though time for the books that I've bought. Yeah, I can't even really give. I can't ask you for books that I don't have time to read in the first place. It took me. Like, it took me 
long enough to read the Communist Manifesto, mm-hmm. which I finally did last summer. I, I want to read. I want to challenge myself to read more, but I'm also just... I'm I'm very, like, uh, wrapped up in so much other shit. I don't make time for it. Mm-hmm. It's hard. Well, I think... Something that always that I always go back to is I always have a book on me. I have a book on me right now. I have two books on me right oh, yeah. now. What do you got? What do I got for y'all? Um, I wasn't going to go this way in this way. I have so many threads I want to cover. Um, first off, my introduction to radicalism okay. was through books. Okay, that's I'm that kind of and I'm oh, that, slated that by answered, the fans. <laughs> yeah, that answers a uh, future uh, question that was I had for you. But we can go right into on. more depth later. Once for sure. Done. Yeah. Um, I have um, this little book about revolutionary education, um, you know, edited by Nino Brown and released by Liberation School, which is the Party for Liberation's, um, you know, publication yeah, of, yeah. of sorts. It's in, nice. meant to educate revolutionaries on how to, um, you know, it's a pedagogic book, so about um, teaching and um, teaching not only to prepare future revolutionaries, but um, to raise the consciousness of the masses as well. So mm-hmm. this is a good little book. Um, then I have a longer one. It's another collection of essays. Um, it's called Transgender Marxism. It is by um, two um, British authors, mm. two British editors, um, wow. Jules Gleason and L. O'Rourke. Um, and it's a collection of essays by various different people of very different stripes, you know, um, people who are, I will say, public intellectuals, but internet critics. Right on. Because um, the public has been outsourced to the internet, really, at this time um, of you know social in this, in this day and age. Um, and then um, it's just a collection of essays, you know, people online, public intellectuals, grad students, professors, people of all stripes, and it's all done by different trans women, um, and it's emphasizing... Um, various critiques of um, popular discourse, um, you know, of what I will now not, don't take my words as um, exact, but what I will call the transgender question, quote unquote. Um, You know, various critiques of the discourse around that, various discussions of why we need to establish a transgender Marxism, Analyses of why um, trans people gravitate towards Marxism. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's very, it's a very long book, and it's written very accessibly, unlike a lot of theory. Um, I wouldn't say it's an extremely theoretical book, um, just because it does come from you know people who aren't um, you know sort of totally um, indebted to the academy, mm-hmm. um, sure. totally in the academy. They're online people, and it's very very easy to understand do you just kind of like select something that like either sticks out to you or something that you in that present moment like are particularly interested in like when you're picking something out yeah so when i'm picking stuff out i'm really looking um for one topics i'm interested in first and foremost i don't have a lot of time i want to do something i'm interested in um, especially if I'm reading. Mm-hmm. It's either something I'm interested in or something I feel I desperately need. So transgender yeah. Marxism, obviously I'm interested. I'm transgender. For sure. I'm a Marxist, interested in this in this perspective. And then the Praxis book is something sorely needed, and it's a bit of a quick read, so I can get through it. Yeah. Um, and then 
Furthermore, I'll look for something really salient. I think my next read is going to be Bell Hooks All About Love, um, mm. which is a great, I've read essays out of it. It's a great read. I've read essays of Bell Hooks's. Um, but it's a great read. I highly recommend anything by Bell Hooks. And I think it's especially salient for, you know, our times. So those are some of the three things I'm looking at. You have to be really, really discerning. And I know it's like the whole don't judge a book by its cover thing. But I've bought many books in the past that I've started reading that brand themselves as revolutionary. But once you know a little bit about the philosophies and frames of reference, you read a little bit of the book, you can sort of see how it might not be so revolutionary, and then you can put it back down. A while back, I was reading a book called um, Dialectic of Pop, um, which is sort of a dialectical take on um, popular music. Sure. Um, I found its perspective not at all dialectical. Um, basically about a third of the way into the book, so I had to put it down. Um, I felt, you know, you feel upset that you waste money on something like that, but if you don't want to waste your money, I would just hit the classics. Like, just go with, you know, Marx, Lennon, Angela Davis. Mm -hmm. If you're just introducing yourself, stick to what is known. Um, you don't want to waste your money on something that you aren't going to get um, education about. You aren't going to get an education in. Yeah. Um, so I think the, the quote-unquote revolutionary framework is a popular one to adopt, but if an author doesn't have the critical conception of what makes their argument revolutionary or dialectical, you can end up finding yourself reading a book that just recontributes um, to oppression. So I think there are a lot of books that offer a revolutionary framework, mm -hmm. But don't end up being revolutionary. Yeah, right. So you get, you know, ample you get ample bookshelf space yeah. taken up by this stuff. Or and they address symptoms rather than the root cause. Exactly. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So it's hard to be really, really discerning. Um, but you know, you end up buying something and you need to put it back. Like it happens. Sure. Um but yeah, it's it's frustrating. Um and I've had to parse back what I'm reading oftentimes to make sure I don't, you know, end up buying revolutionary fashion, revolutionary cooking. Mm -hmm. Like, cooking's, we know how cooking's going to be revolutionary. Do you know how cooking's going to be revolutionary? I have an idea of it. I mean, I think of, I guess what immediately comes to mind is I think of like, you know, like whitewashed cultural food that like, you know, you can get down the street that brands itself as authentic, but really it's, it's, it's appropriated. Um, that's like the thing I think of immediately. Um, what do you think of materially? Like from a material perspective? When food is being food that like, it's one thing if like, you know, you're, you're a white person who like is interested in making different kinds of food like that's fine but i think the problem is like when you are capitalizing off of it when you are hoarding resources away from um those that are actually from that culture that are doing it actually authentically whereas you are taking somebody else's culture and uh you're 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 capitalizing and profiting off of it uh for your own benefit and that takes um material um benefit away from those that are doing it you know who are actually from that country or from that culture does that make sense yeah like 
I think what you're basically generalizing there is the process of cultural imperialism. Yeah, yeah, that's what I, yeah. what I'm getting at, I guess. Yeah, I think that cultural materialism has a unsustainable direct effect on the food that we consume. Like cultural imperialism makes the grocery store look, makes the restaurants look different than if it were quote unquote local food. And I'm not saying people shouldn't try food, but the supply chains that bring like non-native food from other parts of the other parts of the world to America emits so much greenhouse gases, destroys mm-hmm. the climate, yeah. creates untold misery for those laborers who are doing that. Some of the most hyper-exploited laborers, you think of something like the avocado trade. Some of the most, which I know, avocados are commonly grown in California, but also in Mexico. Um, hyper-exploited industries that bring food to the United States, put it in the grocery store and sell it cheaply to Americans. Yeah. yeah. So what food looks like differently um, when we are focused on a different goal is non-imperialist. It's going to be locally grown, locally sourced, so it doesn't have that massive supply chain, that massive carbon footprint, that massive mm-hmm. exploitation. So it's... The mass production. The mass, literal, the mass production, the mass production and reproduction of cultural imperialism that subjects people to, you know, this system of exploitation. Mm-hmm. Um, migrant farmers, migrant laborers, you know, all this stuff. Yeah, like, yeah. there's nothing wrong with enjoying the foods of other culture. And it's something that is normal to enjoy and something that should continue. But that exploitation, that supply chain, yeah. shouldn't continue on a regular basis. 100%. Yeah. People can eat locally grown food, enjoy locally grown food, and, you know, be fine with that without that massive supply chain. Or yeah. you can grow the food from other countries here instead of relying on a supply chain and it's going to be educating people on how they should cook so they don't have to Mm -hmm. go to restaurants teaching and if it's locally grown locally preserved not you know using too much electricity it's going to be preserving food it's going to be it's going to look a lot different Mm -hmm. um seasonal growing seasonal knowing people knowing how to grow and what foods look like seasonally that's revolution like those little very little things those add up to a big revolutionary thing and I'm not trying to individualize the issue like you can do that individually I'm not arguing for like local individual eco food consumption I'm also not arguing for an end to mass production things will need to be produced in mass and things will often need to be shipped Um, but I think when you're looking at um, sustainability on a long term the way that supply chains are oriented now cannot stay for the better of the environment Um, And they only are this way because of the process of commodification and of food and of fashion, Mm -hmm. which is what you're talking about. Like places like fast fashion companies creating micro trends that create the need, create demand for all these, you know, instantaneous different creation of, um, you know, trends, which requires more manufacture, unnecessary manufacturing, then close end up in landfills, create waste, Mm -hmm. um, which is the general outcome of the process of. Uh, commodification Mm -hmm. um, of these things like you can like you can like only wear secondhand vintage clothing and then have a sense of style that's independent and then have an oppositional individual oppositional stance but the mass of people still need clothing Mm -hmm. um, so we will need some mass production but you know it's not reliant on 
it shouldn't be reliant on you know this massive exploitation um, of course this massive yeah. supply chain um and i think that's generally when you talk about it's a good it's good just to think of it as the process of commodification because then you can view it as something that happens um in in every industry when you commodify a thing it leads to overproduction it leads to waste mm-hmm. um yeah and then you don't have a need for all the books on the shelves about each individual industry that has each individual exploitation. Um, once you understand the process of commodification, you don't really have a um, worry about you know reading every book. So I don't I don't feel the need to read every book now. So I don't need to look at like what food looks like. I know what um, yeah. eating right looks for me. Like of course, yeah, that makes sense. Mm-hmm. Yeah, because like it's a, like you were saying yeah. like. Yeah, when you have like the class consciousness, the the understanding of dialectical materialism, you're able to put a lot of the pieces together instinctively. Um, and you know, like, like obviously, there's still so many great books to be reading. Putting smaller pieces into a bigger picture, um, yeah. which is a lot of what, like, you know, Marxist Leninism has has taught us to do. And I am certainly like still figuring out how to do that like constantly and that's kind of why i I do want to why i know i need to read more that's kind of why i wanted to why i asked you to have to be on the show in the first place like in that that um car conversation uh some years ago when we were you were kind of explaining to me what postmodernism was you were kind of sharing like you know some different perspectives from several different philosophers because you know you because you like studied that in school right yeah, so I um, studied music history in school, mm-hmm. which I think is a very conservative discipline. There's some postmodern stuff, especially as it um, pertains um, to the advent of hip-hop music alongside the advent of postmodern theory in the late 70s, early 80s. Um, and, you know, hip-hop artists were sampling. They were basically mm-hmm. assembling tracks out of samples, yeah. out of, you know, break beats yeah um you know basically on the fly that's what producers are doing and then they were laying down you know rhymes over that poetry over that um so very much the postmodern aesthetic was considered a hip-hop aesthetic there are some articles denouncing that by various thinkers um but i think that's generally perspective but i think in general um you know music history and popular music studies is a is a great field um but one that doesn't have necessarily the theoretical bent overall um, towards like postmodernism, um, and then you know I think more recent studies, um, more recent lenses, affect theory, stuff like that. Mm-hmm. Um, I think and music history is not intersectional. It's very um, old conservative um, field of study. Um, you know, popular music studies is a bit more progressive but you know at least for my i haven't really touched much of it um like directly since i was in school i graduated in 2018 um are you saying that are you saying that because like when we think about music history we only think of like a lot of times we're classical music yeah i was gonna say like we, we think of like largely european and american white composers even though music is 
been around in every culture in like all over the world like yeah. since the dawn of time but this is the only music we learn about in schools yeah and i say there the ethnomusicology has been around for a while um so ethnographic studies in musicology and music history studies has been around for a while and that's always been a more progressive field than music history um as it is but i think when you hear the word music history you do think like classical music yeah. um but that's uh that's well-trodden path and people in ethnomusicology have been well along the more progressive lines and well along the more intersectional lines and well along more contemporary theory lines than people sure. in history popular music studies isn't even newer than ethnomusicology and it sort of sprouts out from that mm -hmm. um but it's definitely a bit more um progressive but yeah. what i was whole trying to get at there and what i was rambling towards <laughs> was that um i think even within popular music studies it didn't really do a lot of great, um, even at the time in the, in the 80s and 90s, it didn't do a lot of great um, reconciling with like postmodernism, with better critical theory. And I always felt like what I was doing when I was studying um, was bringing a more theoretical and politically salient bent towards it. So I was always, what I was trying to do, I wasn't necessarily interested in music history. I was always taking it from a more interdisciplinary lens. So I was always writing with a outlook towards, at the time, postmodern and critical theory when I was in school. Um, and I was always trying to, you know, bring all of that stuff together and try to make something coherent. And that really just resonated with me. Because ultimately, mm -hmm. like, I'm not going to say it doesn't matter because it matters, like, two people who do it but like I when I got out of school I immediately I mean I got a job like it didn't like what I was studying in school didn't really matter to my day-to-day -day life sure, anymore sure. and I think you know you might have experienced the same thing when you graduated like, yeah yeah we didn't have the ability to imprint how we felt about these things and how we studied about them in um, our lives on the day-to-day -day level because they were dominated by our job. Yeah, um, yeah. that's true. That actually is a, is pretty true, mm -hmm. especially because like, I didn't even end up utilizing my journalism degree immediately mm -hmm. after I, I graduated. I, I mean, and you know, the, 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 the journalism degree at UWM, I mean, yeah. as it does with any, most any journalism department in, in, higher education prepares you for like commercial um uh like hard news um broadcast news or but that's not what i wanted to do um after like about halfway through my degree i decided i wanted to do music journalism mm -hmm. um i was just you know more more drawn fascinated by that but there's not really many jobs in that um, it's, it's a difficult, uh, it's, I mean, it's a, it's a niche thing to get a job in and as, because it's so niche, it's very competitive. Um, and so like, it was hard for me to find a job. I ended up going the DIY route and, uh, and I'm grateful for that, that I was still able to, to do so in a, in a way that, you know, was still using my skill sets and I was able to write see a bunch of great shows and meet artists and, and analyze music on such a like personal and analytical and deep level. Um, um, but you know, ultimately that's not what has, it, I, ha I haven't gotten to the point where it's even paying my bills yet. You know, like it's, <laughs> um, 
yeah, and I got into more political and left-wing journalism and community journalism as time went on, but that still isn't even paying my bills much either. It, it hasn't been a sustainable um, use of my degree that is still, like, fulfilling to the self, which is obviously something that I have accepted and I do it anyway, but it's still frustrating, you know, like, because it's like, yeah, school taught me that the whole idea of school is that, you know, I'm going to get my degree and get a job that is that caters to my, to my, um, personal as well as financial and spiritual needs. But, you know, we're not quite there. I think we all have some understanding of what we're capable of, Mm -hmm. what people are capable of, what humanity is capable of, but it's actively foistered and yeah, I'm meant to go work in HR, even though I got a degree in music history. Mm-hmm. You are working a normal, you work, Pabst, you know, Pabst. Event staff. Like, instead of doing journalism and writing about all the glorious things that people are doing and are accomplishing, um, that is, you know, on a very basic level, the alienation of the human spirit. Um, I think what... Is it in um, the Grundrisse where Marx says, um, or is it in um, on the Jewish question? Which one is it in? Um, but he says um, the standpoint of the current society um, is um, civil society. The next, the standpoint of the new society will be social humanity. And it's a very early Marx text, so it's very... Um, it's very um, incensed. It's very um, idealistic in a sense. It isn't quite materialistic. Sure. Yet. It is dialectical in the sense that the new society of social humanity realizes itself out of the old society of, of civility, of, um, of that mode. But, um, you know, we come to recognize through the skills that we have, through the lamentation, that we aren't allowed to use them. Um, into a new type of consciousness, into a new type of being, creating a new self, which creates a new society. Mm-hmm. Um, that's creating a communist, communist um, person, a yeah. comrade, a, a creating cadre. Um, and that's why, and that's why I think um, the social aspect of becoming cadre or becoming a communist is so important. Um, you know, you have to. Um, really get to know um, and really be open to knowing other people in that radical sort of way. Um, and that yeah. can help generate a new society. And also the struggle that we do and put in applying our skills, applying our lessons, that is um, what creates a new society. Yeah. I don't know. Do you, if you feel that goes off of sort of um, what you were saying, I think the we recognize the exploitation, the foibling. Yeah. Um, the futility that we experience, the alienation, essentially, that we experience in those daily jobs compared to what we we have done and what we can do, our potential, um, and we try to recognize and recreate the new society um, in that and then go beyond it. It's the same thing we talk about with Roe v. Wade, like the same thing that I have been focusing on when writing my speeches. We are not here just to ensure abortion rights. We are here to instantiate change 
instantiate consciousness, yeah. create consciousness that will go beyond and ensure reproductive justice for all, ensure yeah. housing, healthcare, because abortion is healthcare. Um, who is preventing healthcare from being, you know, yeah. free and accessible at the point of service for mm-hmm. all, within, without questions asked? Right. Um, Where it won't... Who is preventing, you know, trans healthcare yeah. from being, you know, even a thing that is considered? I won't even go that far because, you know, the government, most of the government actually believes that trans people shouldn't exist or deny that they exist. Right. You get what I mean? Yeah. I don't mean to be macabre about it, but it's it's the case. Um, yeah, totally. But we go beyond. We recognize that this is one instance within a broader um, struggle, and we guarantee, we try to guarantee the creation of that society that's going to recognize this as a flashpoint of that broader struggle and fight for what's beyond it. Fight beyond it. Yeah. Fight through this issue to go beyond. And you can say that's contradictory about what I was saying about postmodernism. That is me creating a a meta-narrative of transcendence. That's the revolutionary meta-narrative. That's the Marxist revolutionary meta-narrative. That's the dialectical whatever. But it's you could consider it like the end game of meta-narratives, if you will. Yeah, it's it's... It is the breaking, and yeah. that is not not in not in those words. But I feel that that is always what Jameson always was getting at. Yeah, is that um, this breakage is this breakage this bricolure is what occurs um, when capitalism starts to disintegrate and the new world starts to be born outside of it. Yeah. There is like late capitalism, yes. Um, but postmodernism is the emergent logic therein. Yeah. Thank you for sharing all that, Sam. I, uh, I'm a goof, Ben. Thank you for listening. <laughs> terrific. Do you uh, want to talk about something else? No. <laughs> you're, you know, I'm, I'm to, to kind of. Uh, I want to go back to one last. I'm sorry to interrupt. Go for it. Go for I it. I want to go back to one last question when you said like, oh, what did you write about in school? Like my um, undergraduate distinction project which is essentially a thesis is a long paper yeah. mm-hmm. it was on a band called the fall if you know oh yeah sure no, a the very fall. controversial band i was very much into them in 20 2016 2017 still sure. i'm kind of into them it's right interesting on. yeah um and you know a band called pavement and i was you we all know pavement um sure do um they were going back on tour this fall i know i can't afford the tickets bummer yeah Damn. Uh, well i can but <laughs> will i go it's a know? bit yeah i mean it's a definitely everyone people are stoked about it but continue yeah so i wrote a comparison between the two and i was talking about the the postmodern aesthetics of both i was talking about um how the aesthetic of postmodernism um functioned as a commodity Mm -hmm. um and how that resembled late stage capitalism in both the aesthetics of the band and the commercial approaches of either band um so yeah that was what my um, undergraduate thesis was on. If you are interested, dear listener, in reading this, never talk to me again. <laughs> never co- don't call me. Don't follow on me. Don't follow me on Instagram. Don't. Don't. I won't talk to you about it. Don't even think about it. We never had this conversation <laughs> when we were talking about yeah, like the alienation of the self. You know, all of us are feeling that. Um, you know, like in in some way, shape, or form, right? And so. I think you could even take it a step further if you go back to something that I was saying and see the construction of selfhood um, as we know it today as the process of alienation. 
inaction. It's an inaction of the process of alienation. Mm-hmm. You could see it that way. Well, because like you could when you think about how we yeah. how we how we get things done in in revolutionary socialist organizing, how we achieve our goals, how we make progress. Nine times out of ten, well, actually, really ninety nine point nine percent times out of a hundred, yeah. you don't get things just for asking for things. You yeah. get things from demanding it and mm-hmm. from organizing around it, and um, and we're seeing that in in mass uh, with uh, union corporate unionizations, namely Starbucks and Amazon, right now. Um, you, I mean. Collectivo here in Milwaukee. Collectivo, yeah. yeah. Uh, I'm part of the uh, Pabst Theater Group who are currently in the midst of unionizing. Mm-hmm. That's the first thing I think of when we think about, like, you know, by as individuals, we are prone to that alienation. But collectivizing, we take such individualized alienation and we turn it into revolutionary optimism. And we turn it into something strategic and something that has material goals Mm -hmm. and we don't stop until we get them and that like you know uh helps kind of cure that 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 sense of alienation because we are able to you know that's that's one less layer of like individualized like uh sense of self-actualization and purpose and meaning through what we do that's one less layer of it that, you know, we have to like, um, uh, that, that we perceive as an obstacle, even in the little things, it's exciting to feel that. It is exciting to feel that when you're struggling alongside your comrades. And I will say you talk about unionization, you know, being a material goal, like but unionization starts with a general recognition of your ex of exploitation mm-hmm. so all of us starbucks workers are going to rec- recognize hey starbucks makes way more money um when we are producing all the value here yeah, right, right. um we are being exploited i feel exploited i'm overworked so starbucks can create more value out of me um you yeah. know three lattes are sold and i make 12.50 an hour and that's not enough Three lattes is one hour of me working. Are you I'm, serious? And Starbucks sells ten lattes an hour, and there are only two other people working here. When I worked there, we made I made nine fifty an hour. Yeah, <laughs> I think bad. it's more now, but still, Starbucks it's still not good with still it, not especially with inflation. inflation. Yeah. So even inflation, people recognize the general immigration in society that inflation. They recognize that they're like, hey, these wages still aren't. I'm still getting exploited. So they band together that mm-hmm. on the granular level, that experience of exploitation is material. It creates consciousness, which then yeah. feeds back into a material objective unionization. You know, it creates collective consciousness, feeds back into a material goal, unionization. Mm-hmm. And then you build and you build and you build and the quantity is continually growing and changing the quality, continually going and then you have general revolution that's sort of the principle that's sort of the um dialect that's sort of dialectical materialism by yeah. the way by which things you occur and revolution and basic struggles occur um material things feed into 
um, ideological things. That's just, you know, Marx's materialist dialectic versus Hegel's ideological dialectic. Mm-hmm. That's the flipping on the head. I'm sure you've heard of, like, the flipping on the head, like, Marx flips Hegel's on his head. Um, Hegel believed that ideals conditioned the way, um, you know, people behaved, um, which had been the heuristic um, for a very, very long time in Western philosophy. Mm-hmm. Um, Marx flipped that on its head, um, applying the same dialectical framework, but the other way around. Sure. And said, no, it's people's material conditions that um, create the which, way in which they think. That's not to say that the way in which people think doesn't reflect those material conditions or doesn't have any influence on them. But at the fundamental level, people change along with their material conditions. Yeah. Um, and new struggle is generated. New forms of association, new forms of being, new subjects, new ideas are generated by the material and shared material experiences that people have. So the process you just described earlier of that unionization is that process of dialectics. Mm-hmm. Right. That's, that's dialectics 101. It's almost like we become self-aware cogs in the machine is like yeah. sort of how I think. Yeah. And then, and then the worker like takes or, you know, takes the machine. That's mm-hmm. the ultimate ideal. Yeah. 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 I enjoyed a lot of, uh, that is also the Marxist meta narrative. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> We're talking about it in terms of meta narratives. Yeah. The meta narrative of revolution. Syracuse is an extremely enriching school educationally, socially, like many institutions, it's um, fairly fratty, um, which is um, what sort of made me dive further into my education. I was very not not into that. Yeah. Um, and I found friends. I have friends. I, you know, people who love me still love them. Of course. Yeah. Um, and I dive very deep into my education. And I took a class my sophomore year that was like, basically, it was a cultural geography class and it was I took it as a gen ed and it was basically um, introduction to Marxism so describing the professor described the monetary cycle he described um, you know the commodity cycle he described Marxist economics he described alienation he described exploitation of labor um, from a very Marxian economic perspective. And it was great. And that's where I was first learning about... In high school, I did learn a couple things. I was introduced to Marx a little bit there and a sort mm-hmm. of like very crass theory of dialectics. Um, but I did was introduced to it there and started sort of reading... I read the Communist Manifesto in high school. Mm-hmm. Um, no, I'm not bragging, I promise. <laughs> um, and then I started to learn more and more. And I'd say the book that actually radicalized me is um, a book by probably you would consider them a social democrat and i think it's um it's by a guy named jonathan crary the book is called 24 7 and it sort of describes how capitalism um was making commodity production a 24 7 thing it was um taking over all of our lives all of our times and it was also about the revolution of time that capitalism did um into fordism talked about you know that very basic level of exploitation so that's what started getting me in it after that i read capital um kind of understood it, didn't really, I had a basis already in having studied that in school. Um, and then I started reading, um, you know, all sorts of different theory, a lot of Marx. Um, you know, I started reading Foucault, I started reading um, Judith Butler, you know, oh, yeah, I really Butler. jumped into theory after starting that. Um, mm. So I was really like educated and became more interested in radical politics and um, Marxism from 
all that reading I was doing. Right on. Yeah. Are you? Have and you re- also Jameson and Leotard. I was reading that at the same time. I was reading all of that, and then the other stuff I was required to read for gotcha. school. Like I was reading all of that, and that is sort of what generated. So it was all very intellectual to me. So I didn't join an org until like the struggle became very, very palpable yeah. in 2020 during the George Floyd uprising. I didn't join an org until then, and I wish I had joined it earlier. Mm-hmm. Sure. Mm-hmm. It's okay. I didn't join until Bernie lost myself. So. What a loser. <laughs> Not you, Bernie. Yeah, I know. When you're talking about cultural geography, mm-hmm. one of my favorite classes I took in high school, I didn't take high school very seriously at all. I mean, I... Uh, I I liked broadcasting, but one of the electives I took that I actually did pretty well in the class, but it's really fascinating to me was AP Human Geography, mm-hmm. and it would have been great to like apply Marxist theory to that course because mm-hmm. I think that a lot of it would have been very applicable to the way like peoples and cultures like are influenced by region and and like geography and all that stuff. Uh, really fascinating stuff. Did you um, did you take any uh, ex or have you read much existentialism? Uh, yeah, in high school, I was very interested in existentialism. Yeah, um, I think um, probably my first year out of school, I was reading like I was reading Camus, which is absurdism, but still existentialism. Let's be sure. real. Um, I was reading Camus, like uh, The Stranger was definitely something. Or other short stories. Um, other short stories by Sartre was a big thing my freshman year of high school. Um, I had read Existentialism as a Humanism, which is a very short text by Sartre. Um, I mean, that's not the correct French pronunciation. Um, mm-hmm. But Existentialism as a Humanism, which is a very t- short text by Sartre. I had been reading Nietzsche as well, which is a foundation. I had read some Kierkegaard in high school. Um, I had read um, another preoccupation of mine in high school. This was all before I transitioned, so please don't hold me to any of this ever. Nothing that happened before my transition actually happened. Um, exactly, right. Yeah, but I had also read um, some Arthur Schopenhauer in high mm. school, which is another big influence on existentialism because um, he's a nihilist philosopher or was a nihilist philosopher. I'd read all that stuff, um, and it was a big influence on me in the past. Um, and you can sort of see... Um, existentialism as I would say the dreaded outcome of liberalism if you've I like to think of it this way um, when you're so self fixated on um, what it means for you to simply exist you end up realizing that your life as it exists in you know, the sort of conceptual liberal humanism that we've been sold is untenable because there is no humanism to the way we exist. There is no humanity to the way we exist. It does not treat humans as humans. So you are mm-hmm. left with a completely unattainable. And what existentialism basically says is you have to generate meaning beyond that. So that's how you end up consuming um, and generating the self um, beyond that. And then you generate meaning that way or you um, do it with something else. Could be any innumerable things. Um, but you realize that none of those things capture the broader social humanity that I mentioned earlier um, that allows you to transcend the very primal alienation you feel of not being 
social. Mm-hmm. That is what it means to, you know, um, be a person, really. Um, and that is what we're constantly alienated from. That's why I think existentialism as a framework is sort of. Because I've considered, I've identified with yeah. existentialism a lot. And I guess it would make sense to under current material conditions, as you said. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, would that be nearly as... Um, I would like to say under current material conditions means um, it doesn't mean much to me because I think current material conditions are generative of existentialism as they are generative of um, alienation. Um, I don't think that existentialism as a philosophy is tenable um, alongside communism. Okay. Like, well, that's what I was saying was like, do you think that like it it, it would be futile or unnecessary if we unnecessary. had commun- if we had communism? Yeah, that yeah. would that would make sense. Um, yeah, like once the revolution happens, we and won't need as much of it. I would like to say each social order, like capitalism as a social order, generates its own philosophy, its own self justificatory and sometimes um you know its own self-justificatory and its own um you know philosophies that explain it um or um attempt to accommodate it and i think that is where existentialism comes from i don't think existentialism comes from a radical place and i disagree um with sartre completely and sartre later identifies himself as a marxist like very later in his writing um I haven't read a ton of that, but I don't really think it's necessary. Read Fanon instead. Sartre's preface to um, Wretched of the Earth is actually great. But I don't think that's reflective of the general philosophy of existentialism. Yeah. I understand. I wrote a... uh, I took an existentialism class my senior year, and my my final paper was I compared Beauvoir and Sartre, like their writings and, like, because... Beauvoir was like a she was like a, a feminist existentialist yeah. yeah yeah and like why some of Sartre's writing is like contradicted by Beauvoir like with the presence of like a feminist perspective like I mean it was like four years ago I couldn't tell you I don't remember it too well but um Sam it was great to have you on the show we're done already you said you had one more question I'm sorry we do have to go what was your other question before it was, we go well, tell me you kind of answered it it was I, I was everything. <laughs> I know the questions before they were going to be asked yeah I guess you did um, <laughs> you know me too I'm so predictable no I don't know you too well I know myself I know what people are curious about me well I was going to ask you about how yeah. you found the party but you kind oh, of explained yeah. it um, when... yeah, 2020 uprisings never mind yeah well it's been great to have you to, to be uh, organizing alongside you. It's great to organize alongside you too, Ben. Yes. Yes. I got that, <laughs> I got that reciprocation. Uh, That's impossible for me. I'm a stony bit. <laughs> yeah. Shit. Well, uh, my closing two questions that I ask everybody. Sam, uh, what keeps you up at night? What keeps me up at night? Yeah. Oh, God. Um, really just like, family trauma (laughs) that's some real shit for sure yeah well the flip side is what puts you to sleep what puts me to sleep um 
usually it's a piece of toast with gochujang on it. Wow. And then maybe if you're feeling really spicy, um, you put a little Kewpie mayo on there. It's the grossest thing. Oh. It sounds terrible. This is your comfort uh, <laughs> snack? Yeah, I don't... And it's always like low-calorie toast. It's like Ezekiel bread. Oh, my goodness. <laughs> <laughs> or it's... um, If you've ever been to Cermak, they have a particular brand of low-calorie... Oh. Uh, bread, it's like 44 calories. They use a slice. It's like whole wheat, low calorie bread, high in fiber. Um, but no, what really, really would put me to sleep tonight is a capsule of progesterone. That is what puts me to sleep, really. Oh. You're asking. I don't even. I don't know what that is. Look it up, kids. We'll okay. We'll do. Thanks for being on the show. <laughs> for everyone watching, uh, yeah. Uh, Read up on your postmodernism and, uh, of course, your Marxist-Leninism, too. And uh, consider joining the Party for Socialism and Liberation. You know, all power to the people. And, uh, all power to the people. Yeah, thank you for watching, Mr. Nice Guy. We will see you next time. Cheers. <laughs>